James chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be in verses 19 and 20 as we close out the chapter this morning. It says in verse 19, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would bless now as we uh, settle into the Sunday school hour. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place, and Lord, that you bless each teacher as they teach in uh, the word of God. Bless the students, help them to be attentive, and we pray, Lord, that you'd work in hearts and lives and in the minds of your people. And Lord, even if there's one that doesn't know Christ today, that you'd work in their heart as well. And Father, we pray that each one would be changed to be more like Christ through the teaching of your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage, I'll ask the question, is James addressing believers or unbelievers? We read these two verses, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm all kebobbled this morning or something. But. So you understand the context of, the, of what I was saying. If any of you do err from the, the truth and one convert him, let him know uh, that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way uh, shall save the soul from death and shall hide a, multitudes of sin, a multitude of sins. So I, I think I heard some grumblings. I don't think anybody, I heard a yes. So that's kind of the, the easy answer. He's talking to both. And that very well may be true. Um, but anybody else have any thoughts? It says brethren. All right. Okay, let's dig into this. Uh, I did a, quite a bit of uh, research, probably more so because of my past in the church that I grew up in. Uh, they did not believe in the eternal security of the believer. And so obviously this was an easy verse for them to use uh, to say somebody that has erred and they have lost their salvation and then you go and you uh, convert them again. I, I don't believe that's the context of this passage. Uh, but many make the argument this is an evangelistic appeal. And some even say that James is kind of changing the subject. You know, the last two verses, he kind of diverts from what he's been talking about and, and for some reason converts to an evangelistic appeal uh, or some type of exhortation to reach the lost. Uh, however, I believe <clears throat> primarily, but I will say this, not necessarily exclusively, I would hate to be too terribly dogmatic where the scripture maybe not be that dogmatic, uh, but I believe this passage is a call to restore wandering believers. Um, I believe that with all my heart, especially after some of the things I looked at this week, uh, preparing for this. I, I thought that for years uh, because I did struggle with that when I first uh, was saved. And I, I got baptized and I began getting discipled because of the teachings of my past. I, I did struggle with it. Um, and so I've dealt with this issue before, uh, but um, it even confirmed it more in my mind today that he is talking about restoring brethren to the right fellowship with the truth, uh, to the right fellowship with uh, what they were reached with in Christ. Um, so, <clears throat> with all that said, what responsibility do you and I have to a sinning believer? So, we, he says in, in verse 19, and I'll give you a glimpse into what we're going to wrap this up to in the end. It says, if any of you do err from the truth... And one convert him. So that means somebody must be taking some effort to go reach that one that is erred. So what is our responsibility as, 
as people that claim to be grounded and claim to be spiritual, we can say we're spiritual according to Galatians 1, where it talks about restoring those. Um, So what's our responsibility? But first, why do I believe he is addressing believers? Because I think we need to look at this. Uh, If nothing else, uh, for my benefit, we can all say we agree and we but I think we should have some basis to be able to defend our argument. Um, so uh, I think <clears throat> if you look at verse 19, you can see the present context. James opens the closing with the word brethren. So he's really wrapping up everything that he said uh, in this message uh, to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. So in his closing, he opens with brethren. He's speaking to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, no doubt, I believe this, this book, he has been addressing uh, the, the folks in the church there, uh, probably at Jerusalem. He uses this term throughout the book of James. And, and we kind of talked about it, so I won't weary you too much. But look at verse 7. So we won't look at the whole chap, or the whole book. We'll just look at this chapter. But James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren. Jump down to verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren. The next verse in verse 10, it says, take my brethren, excuse me, then verse 12, it says, but above all things, my brethren, swear not. And so uh, over and over, James repeats this idea that he's talking to the brethren. He's talking to those that are in Christ. And uh, one of the arguments that some might have is if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, James is servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ of the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting, and it says, my brethren. Some make the argument he's talking about his brethren in his kinship uh, with the Israelites. Uh, I, w- I would say I, I disagree based on the context of the entire book as he's, he's writing this to the people that are in the church, laboring and serving, that know the truth. Uh, so I, I think the context here makes it very clear that he's talking to the brethren. Uh, he closes out the book with that same term in verse 19. Brethren. So for those that made the argument, in, and I looked at several different scholars, I guess you would say, um, different commentaries, that there, many of them, they, it's almost like they took the easy way out and just said, this is a call to evangelism, because I don't know how to explain it otherwise, uh, because they feel like it was kind of disjointed and it didn't fit with the context. But we'll look at that in a few moments. I think it really does fit with the context of what James is saying. And, and if you stick with me this morning, uh, we'll get there. But the immediate context... Again, it says no flow. The, the argument, they kept saying there's no flow uh, in this uh, passage. And James closes it with a whole new thought, one of them said. And I thought that seems kind of weird to me. Um, and if you remember, it's not James writing this in and of his own thoughts and minds. This is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the Word of God. God is writing this to the people. And so... Uh, <clears throat> Maybe they were giving too much credit to James. I don't know. But I see a connection here. Look at verse 19. And there's that term, if any of you. Uh, it starts with brethren. Then he immediately goes into any of you. To me, it seems that he is speaking to those in the body of Christ. Very simply put back. Look back at verse 13, if you will, uh, if, if you don't mind. Verse 13, is any among you afflicted? Would anybody argue that he's talking to Christians there? The same people that are among you. It says, let him pray. Is any merry? I think the argument, nobody would doubt that he's talking to the believers in those verses. 
But all of a sudden, for some reason, even though he's using the same language in verse 19, they want to try to say it's something different. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think it's very easy to see the flow of the chapter, and even uh, the book of James is addressing the brethren. Uh, he's addressing those in Christ, I believe. Uh, very simply put. Verse 19, look at that again. Is any, uh, if any of you do err, I think it's easy to say that these were brethren among them, it says, among them, uh, that had wandered from the truth. So this indicates to me that this erring person was among them, was a believer, somebody that knew the truth, and they needed to go and turn them back or to convert them. They had erred uh, from the truth. Uh, it seems to connect really well with verse 16. If you want to look at that with me, it says, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Again, and I won't worry you with stuff that we talked about last week, I do believe this is uh, not exclusive to physical healing, but can relate to spiritual healing as well. As they confess their faults, they confess their sin, their spiritual healing that would happen is as they got right with God and they got right with one another because they had been grudging and those kind of things, there's a potential for spiritual healing as well. And so maybe perhaps maybe those that prayed, boy, maybe they prayed and they confessed, but uh, they did not forsake their sin. They were erring from the truth. And, and listen, we have a responsibility to go after, to seek those who have gone astray and turn them back. It happens in our churches. And just because somebody fails, somebody sins, does not mean we should cast them aside. Uh, we ought to be very patient and loving. And we ought to put effort into going back and reaching them. Uh, we put a lot of emphasis on reaching the lost. And converting the lost. But how more effectively could we do that if we had a right relationship in our fellowship in the church? Listen, the reality is this is tough stuff because we don't, we're not good at verse 16. We're not good at getting right with one another. We want to see somebody's faults and some failures and then we want to go busybody about it. And we want to gossip about it. We want to tear them down. We want to break things up rather than deal with the restoration of those individuals. Uh, and perhaps because maybe they failed in an area that we failed and just nobody's found out. Um, <clears throat> we need to be careful of how critical we are of people at times. And I think in our independent circles, independent Baptist circles, over the history, in my experience, we're not so good about restor restoration. Uh, we like to throw egg in the face, and we like to call somebody out, and we fail uh, to reach out in love. Uh, now, listen, we, I really don't have time to get into it, but the Apostle Paul had issues at times, and they, they broke fellowship, right? And, and so I'm not saying you agree 100% all the time. Uh, but the reality is, as much as was in us, what should we be doing? Seeking peace and restoration and, and building a relationship. Because if we can do that in the house of God, how much greater can we reach the lost? If there wasn't so much division, I think we could get a lot more done. We have a responsibility to go after those that have erred, those that are wandering. And so we see the condition of these individuals. If any of you do err from the truth, the term do err comes from the Greek word uh, planeo. It occurs in our New Testament 50 times. Uh, it means to roam, to go astray, has the idea of maybe being seduced or deceived, 
to err, to wander, to be out of the way. And so these that have erred, and it is a verb, it's been translated, and I have a list of these with references. I, we definitely do not have time to look at all these, uh, but it has been translated, the same Greek word has been translated, deceived, err, be, shall, deceive, deceive, deceiveth, do, and are gone astray, are astray, go astray, being deceived, do err, do ye, going astray, he deceived, he deceiveth, he shall deceive, is gone astray. Uh, even in one place it's light. And so we do, obviously don't have the time to go look at all these references. But what I'm telling you is, uh, the idea here is this is somebody that has wandered. They've gone astray. They have erred from the truth. They're no longer walking in the truth that they have believed and received. They're not being obedient to what they have received, uh, to the truth that they have. Um, they have wandered from the truth. And so truth here is kind of in the broad sense uh, the truth of the gospel, I would say. You could say it that way. Um, the truth that is to be believed and the truth that is to be obeyed. So perhaps they've believed this truth and now at this stage in their life they are erring and they are failing to be obedient to the truth. Uh, we should not love them any less for that. Uh, they are wandering from the truth. Uh, you know, this could be doctrinally perhaps. Maybe it's morally uh, on their own. Certainly there are false teachers, and we have examples of that in the New Testament, um, that they spread lies in, in false doctrine and they deceive people. You, if you remember in 2 Timothy, Hymenaeus and Philetus, uh, you know, and those that would upset the faith of some, uh, doctrinally they're spreading things that aren't true, uh, but this also could be of moral failure. They've erred from the truth morally. They've failed. Uh, they've fallen into sin of some kind. And unfortunately, we could give example after example of people that we've known just in my Christian walk that I can look back at their life and they've erred from the truth. Some of them have been restored, praise God. Uh, but they made a decision and they fell into sin and they were erring from the truth that they know, uh, that they believed uh, they had just failed. I think James could have, in in tying it back into what James has already given us, I think James uh, has already referred to some of these people in chapter 4. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses because they had become friends with the world. James 4.4, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore is the friend of the world is the enemy of God. So James, no doubt, is dealing with things in the lives of these people that are indications that they have erred. They are no longer being obedient to the truth that they had received at one point. Uh, They had failed. They had sinned. They had wandered. And uh, we know that Demas uh, departed, having loved this present world in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says that Demas had forsook him, having loved this present world. And it says he goes to to Thessalonica. Uh, Listen, the reality is these are they that have wandered from the message itself, or maybe they've wandered in a moral sense. Uh, That is the condition of the erring one. Somebody that is no longer following in line with the truth that they had received. Uh, We might say that they're drifting. They're in a moral mess. Uh, So what do we do? James gives us some counsel here in verse 19. In the latter part of that verse, it says, And one convert him. First, I want to make this note. Uh, because I think it's an important one, that this is a responsibility of the believers in general. This is not the responsibility of the elders that we see that were called for earlier. This is not the responsibility of the deacons. Uh, 
the pastor. Certainly those individuals will take part in, in, in going to convert or to restore somebody that's erred. If you have good church leaders, they would do that anyway. That ought to be their desire is to restore those folks. But listen, this morning, my point to you all this morning is it's not exclusively their responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to go. And so some people would say, well, it's not my business. Yeah, it is. We're family. If you see somebody in our congregation, in our midst, that, that is erred, you have a responsibility to go try to encourage them to get back on the right path to begin living the truth once again. Uh, to get them back in right relationship with our God. That's the counsel I believe that James is giving here. And one, convert him. And so don't think that it's not your responsibility and somebody else is going to do it. We ought to own the Christian life. Uh, it, gotta be, it needs to be genuine in us. This might be a little presumptuous, but I think oftentimes we have an issue going and helping other people deal with their troubles their trials, their sin, because we ourselves aren't confessed up. Like in verse 16. We haven't got ourselves right. So we feel like we have no ground, no basis to go and, and deal with somebody. So that, to me, is just a call for us to get right with God. Get ourselves right, confess, uh, and, and begin walking how God has instructed us to do according to the truth that we might be a better brother to those around us. We can't sharpen the iron of our brother if we're sharp, if we're dull. We ought to be right with our God that we might help others. <clears throat> Listen, we're, the bottom line is we're good at passing the buck or the responsibility to others. Somebody else can do that. But here, I really believe the counsel James gives is that we are all to be involved in restoring one another. The word convert means to turn about. It comes from the Greek word. This is a tough one, epephe strefo. It means to revert, to come, or to go again, to return. Uh, and, and again, I have a list of, of ways that it's translated in our New Testament. Return again, be converted, return. Uh, shout, should be converted to turn, turned, turn him about and turned. Uh, are turned, are converted, art converted, excuse me, being turned, come again, convert, he which converteth, I turned, I will return. So there's more here. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll not do that with you. If you want those references, I have them all right here, but we don't have time necessarily to, definitely not to look at them or even men, to, to mention them. Uh, but the reality is here, it is a turning from sin to God, a call to repentance, if you will, because they've erred. They have left the truth. I, I don't think they've, they've not lost their salvation, but they are not in right fellowship with God. They are out of the way, you might say. <clears throat> so James is giving us counsel here to bring those that have erred back to God. Bring them back to the truth. Um. As I said, I don't want to be too dogmatic. Could it be a call to salvation? Possibly. There's examples of this. Acts 14, 15, 15, 19, 26, 18, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, where it talks about those that are converted, 
Uh, and the, in those, the context of those passages, I think it's very clear that those people were converted at salvation. They were regenerated at those moments. Um, so very similar. But again here, I think the context uh, and how James says is among you, and, and these people at least outwardly have identified with Christ and other believers. Uh, at least outwardly. So perhaps in our efforts to go restore somebody, we find out that maybe they weren't ever saved. Because that can be the case. There's examples of scripture. They went out from among us because they were not of us. So, but we can't judge that. We don't know that. So is the call really any different? Maybe in, in the sense that you might focus on salvation in one way. In the other way, you're focusing on restoration. But the reality is we ought to be about bringing people into a right relationship with the truth a right relationship with our God, reconciling people uh, to God. But I believe in this passage, these folks have definitely at least outwardly identified with Christ. Uh, therefore, the turning back is to faith from that they had strayed, the, the things that they had believed and they had erred or strayed or gone astray. And there's biblical precedence or example for this, I believe. Uh, the same word uh, for convert, is used when Jesus tells Peter that uh, Satan desired to sift him as wheat. Uh, I believe Peter was a believer. I believe he was saved at that point. Uh, and he had wandered from the truth in that moment, right? In that night, uh, before the cock would crow three times, uh, he had erred from the truth. And Luke twenty-two thirty-one and 32 says this, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired you that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, look at what it says here. Strengthen thy brethren. I thought that was interesting. Um, <clears throat> let me read you Albert Barnes' note here before I, I look, give you my thoughts. His might sound more educated. A man may be converted or turned from any sin or any evil course. He is regenerated but once. At the beginning of his Christian life, he may be converted as often as he fails into sin. And so I think that really kind of captures the whole thought in these couple of verses here. Uh, but it says, and this is where, where my thoughts kind of went to, Peter is then instructed to strengthen the brethren. And the reality is we are often very ineffective or unable to help people effectively until we have gone through the trial ourselves. Once you experience failure and that restoration and you're converted and you're back in line with the truth and your fellowship with God is restored and how joyous that is. Boy, don't you want everyone to experience that? And so I know there's people that I have been able to help along the way in my short Christian life only because I had a similar experience in my life. And so I think it was interesting that the Savior told him, strengthen the brethren. When you're converted, hey, when, you, uh, when you're restored, when, when that relationship is made right again, uh, by the way, I'm praying for you, but go strengthen your brothers. Go share your experience because I know for me, when I get right with God, I have a newfound confidence. And it's almost like you feel like you can accomplish anything for God. My old youth instructor, youth instructor, youth director, whatever they are, uh, he used to say, they're ready to charge hell with a squirt gun just because they're so on fire for the things of God. 
And when you get your life right with God, isn't that how you feel? And you can go strengthen your brothers and your sisters in Christ and help them with the struggles that they have because maybe they're erring. And maybe now you have this experience of your own and so you can say, hey, you're headed in the wrong direction, brother. I've been down that path. That's not what God would have you do. That's not living in the truth of the word of God. And so come on over and enjoy great fellowship with our God. Get right with God. Repent of those things that you've uh, sinned and, and get right with God. We are to go after those erring brothers and sisters using our experiences to help them. And so what's the result of heeding the counsel? So we saw the condition of those folks and then the counsel that he tells us to go after them. In verse 20 says, He will deliver a sinner from death and hide a multitude of sins. In many cases, or even the majority of cases, the word sinner describes those who would be considered unbelievers. So again, we kind of rehash this thought out because I know at least for me as I read the verse and I begin to digest it, as I mentioned, I had a lot of struggles with it. Because when you see the word sinners in the Bible, oftentimes it is in reference to the lost and to those that are without Christ. And Genesis 13 is a great example. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Matthew 9, 13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. However, once again, in our context, in our passage here, uh, James used the word sinner to describe believers earlier in this writing. And so I don't think exclusively when somebody is referenced as a sinner in the word of God that it's only referring to the lost. Uh, I think there's a good argument that that's not the case. James chapter 4. It's just a page over, maybe even half a page for some of you. It says, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Would anybody disagree with me that he's addressing Christians in that verse? But all of a sudden in verse 20, in 19 and 20, we got this issue, well, he must be talking to the unbelievers. I don't believe so. Uh, they're referred to as sinners. The apostle Paul referred to himself as a sinner. In 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I know there's an argument that he's referencing his sins before his conversion on the road to Damascus. But I think if you look at Romans chapter 7 and the and 8 and those things where the Apostle Paul battled his flesh and he was not perfect and sinless, he would, I think if we had the opportunity to ask the Apostle Paul, he would admit he's a sinner. And oftentimes, what do we say? We're sinners saved by grace. And so we are still sinning. I know I've sinned this week. You guys haven't seen Cindy's black eye yet? Have? No, I'm just kidding. So I feel like I need to lighten it up a little bit. But. So I don't believe James is addressing unbelievers. I believe the context here is that James is addressing the believers that have erred from the truth. They have fallen away, uh, whether that was through false teachings, they had been deceived, or morally they had moral failures. Uh, but it says, that he, it says, He which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death. That was a tough one for me. Because it talks about the soul. I was like, boy, what am I going to do with this now? Because everything else that I've... Uh, looked at it, boy, it's talking about the soul. And, um, <clears throat> but I think James' words here are reminiscent 
of similar instructions by Paul uh, and Jude. Galatians 1, and this is a well-known passage where they're giving instruction uh, to spiritual believers to attempt to bring carnal believers back to the Lord. It says, Brethren, if any man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And, And of course, James, or excuse me, Jude, but... James emphasized, I think, the gravity of the point of the matter by pointing out that the believer who turns a sinning saint back from the air of his way will save the soul from death. James is saying this is a matter of life and death. And so I did struggle with this, uh, not so much recently, but in years past. But the Greek word here is psyche. Here it is translated soul, as within its field of meaning, I think it has both life and person. Uh, it's not speaking of our eternal soul necessarily. Uh, and we have an example of this in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. It says this, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life, or psyche, the exact same Greek word, a ransom for many. Uh, I, I don't believe Christ gave up his eternal soul. He gave his life. And so I think it would be appropriate in this passage that we could say that uh, he will save a life from death or he will save a person from death. I don't think that would be out of line uh, with what uh, the Lord intended uh, when he penned the word of God here. And just if you're doubting me, there's a couple smarter guys than I am. Anybody heard of Dr. Charles Ryrie? He writes this. In reference, or the reference is evidently to Christians... And the death is physical death, which sin may cause. And then he, he, in parentheses, it says 1 Corinthians 11.30, which is those that would take the Lord's Supper unworthily. uh, And they were asleep because of their sin. And they were unwilling to deal with their sin. And they took of the Lord's table unworthily. God took their life. So an untimely death, you might say. And uh, there are others. Worsby holds the same thing. Uh, a guy named Ronald Blue, I'd never heard of him till this week. And then H.A. Ironside, I know you guys have heard of that guy. He, all these have the same similar commentary in reference to that, where the death or the soul, save a soul from death, is talking about their physical life. And it, it, would, it likely uh, indicates an untimely death due to their unwillingness or their unrepentant heart because they've erred from the truth. And so no doubt I would make the, the assumption that God has brought chastisement and God is working in their life and they have chose not to respond. And so at some point that only God knows, God decides, you know what, I'm, I'm done. And he takes their physical life. Uh, I don't believe it's their eternal soul. Uh, but of course there are those that, who would suggest the eternal salvation uh, from hell is the view here. Um, I, I think that suggestion uh, flies in face of the clear gospel teachings that are throughout the Bible. Um, I, I think it's very clear. The Bible uh, is clear that the sole condition of eternal salvation is faith in Christ. It is not moral reformation. Uh, we don't get our lives in order that we might be saved. I think the Bible is very clear. And if you have any questions, I think Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 are the easiest verses to make that very clear and evident. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So there's nothing that we can do to earn that or to keep it. And so 
uh, I believe our eternal security is very clear throughout the scriptures, and I didn't want to spend a lot of time there. The wanderer who is brought back from the truth, I believe you could make the argument it's to avoid a premature death, or you might say a spiritual death, because they have a lack of fellowship with their God. They have a lack of fellowship with the people of God. They have a lack of fellowship with their God, and so there's a dead relationship, if you will. Uh, they're not experiencing that. And I know in my Christian life, that's a miserable way to be. It feels like death. It's dry. It's just, uh, we looked at some of that stuff when we were in Psalms 119. And so when we confess those things, when we get those things right, um, we, be, we have that blessed feeling of a, of a right relationship with our God, and our sins are covered, it says. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we have this restored fellowship, and, and, and our sins are covered, they're, they're forgiven. What does this mean for us as we close out today? I think it's simple. We ought to be about restoring others to the truth. And if you don't agree with me on this, and you think that he's addressing people that are, that are lost, then you better get active in your soul winning efforts. Amen. No different, right? Restoring the brothers or restoring the lost. Regardless of your view on this, get busy. Uh, and, I, and I think it's a call to be active about it, not to be passive. And so he's exhorting us to seek after those that have erred. Uh, and return them to the truth, uh, they, uh, that they might walk in the truth once delivered unto them. We ought to be about seeking them who have strayed. Uh, listen, we can't be passive in it. Uh, it's a serious matter, a matter of life and death, James says. Uh, take it seriously. Uh, it's an important issue. <clears throat> Let's change the old saying. I know you guys have heard it. The Lord's army is the only army that shoots its own wounded. I know I heard that, I don't know how many times throughout my Christian life. And, and we are good at, at just keeping people down. So however the great defection is, however the damaging, the action that this person did, or however erroneous the belief, let us remember when God forgives, He forgets. And covers a multitude of sins. And, and so we ought to be about restoring those that have erred. Converting those that erred. We need to love on people. How much more importantly, those of the household of faith. Our brothers and sisters ought to know that we love them. And, and we want only God's best for their life. And so when we do go to somebody and say, hey, this is out of line. We need to do it in love. It may be hard. It might be difficult for them to receive. And I think that's why it's all much more important for us to go in love with the right attitude, the spirit of meekness as we saw in Galatians. Right? Why? Lest we also be tempted. Right? We're subject to the same issues. And again, boy, I don't have a lot of time. But um, I think it, it falls in line with verses 17 and 18 when it says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. <clears throat> After the rain came, the prophets of Baal are defeated, right? What happens to Elijah? He gets despondent. He gets depressed, right? Like passions. Listen, we have a tendency to err in our humanity. And so, listen, don't hold on to other people's failures forever. But be willing to forgive as our Lord is willing, to love them 
and to encourage them to come back to the truth. We would probably run out of time today if we went around the room and told of stories of people that we know that have left church because of the way they were treated. And I'm not saying they're right for leaving, but I will say this. In some of those cases, they were justified because they were treated very harshly and not in the love of Christ. People confronted them harshly and called them out, maybe even publicly when it wasn't necessary, and it was a very difficult thing for them. And so, boy, they're gone. We need to be careful. So when we do try to bring those back, we bring them back in love. And don't ever forget, and I think I've said this over and over recently, but do it the way Christ did it to you. He was so gentle, he was so patient, and so loving, there's no need for you to be harsh just to prove that you're right. Let's pray.